this time, children ages three through first grade can go to the back for Children's Church. Uh, if this is your kiddo's first time going, please follow them down so you know where to collect them afterwards. Due to the length of today's passage, you can remain seated while we read. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that moved along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We've just read how your word is powerful, how your word brings order and brings things in relation such that there is life and flourishing. And so we who come here today with different uh, broken pieces of our lives, different things, uh, not aligned, we pray that your word by the work of your spirit would bring order and flourishing life to us, and we pray that you would do this in and through the goodness of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Um, so let me tell you something about pastors and what pastors do, um, at least this pastor and I think a lot of others. We listen to other pastors. Uh, we listen to other pastors uh, partly sometimes just for encouragement because we do some speaking and so listening to other people speak to us is important. But also kind of like musicians will listen to other musicians to, to get inspiration and ideas and other things. We, we listen to other people. So a few weeks ago I was listening to a friend of mine from my time in RUF a guy named Sean Slate uh, at Redeemer Church of Knoxville, and he wasn't preaching on this text, but one of his illustrations was just too perfect for this text. Um, so I want to tell you about a movie. Um, it's a new Wes Anderson film. Any Wes Anderson fans out there? Crickets. There's a few. There's a few. Okay. It's called Asteroid City. This is considered to be one of his most philosophical films. If you've never seen a Wes Anderson film, my description of what follows is probably not going to convince you to start watching him, but maybe it will pique interest. So his films are usually dry comedies that are eccentric, odd, unusual, strange. I just, you know, just keep going with a thesaurus. It's an acquired taste for sure. And Asteroid City is definitely uh, in that category in that this is a movie that presents itself as a documentary about a play that never existed. So <laughs> I realize, yeah, no one's watching this now. A movie, about a, doc a movie presenting itself as a documentary about a play that never existed. Well, in the middle of the play, there is this certain actor in the play, and he does something that he doesn't understand, and it bothers him. He does something as a character in this play, but he doesn't understand 
why his character would do that. And it really bothers him. And so he, uh, at one point, you know, when he's not in the play, he, he, walks, he walks off the set and he speaks to the stage manager and he says to him, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? I don't understand who my character is. I don't understand what we're doing. I want you to pause for a moment and just see if that resonates with your life. Am I doing it right? We are constantly doing things. We're constantly, I mean, we're involved in things. We're committing ourselves to things. We get up, we live, we, we do stuff. We have chores, we have work, we have family. We might have kids. Am I doing it right? Am I doing work right? Am I doing relationships right? Am I doing marriage right? Am I doing, am I parenting right? If you're a Christian, if you're here as someone who follows Jesus, you probably ask yourself, am I doing this right? Like, does my life line up? Does it fit? Does it play the role of someone who is united to Jesus and indwelt by the Spirit? Am I doing this right? Well, back to the film, the stage manager tells him, uh, just keep telling the story which is incredibly unhelpful because that's precisely the problem. He doesn't know the story. And so he's frustrated and, and he, he leaves and he walks out into this alleyway and he sees a woman who looks familiar, like, like vaguely familiar, like he's seen her before, like he has a recollection of her. And the reason for this is because this woman was cast to be his wife in the play, in the first act and in the last act, but then the directors decided to cut her and so, she's only this photo in the play. He has this distant memory of her. And he starts to speak to her, and he says, I don't understand what I'm doing. I don't understand what this play is. I don't understand why I do what I do. And then she tells him the first act and the last act of the play. And he's able from that place to go in and actually now play the role. I want you to think about what we just read in the book of Genesis. The Israelites, who were the first recipients of this book, were people that had been saved, delivered by Yahweh, their God, out of slavery in Egypt. They had lived in an ancient Near Eastern world, a world where it was common to believe that human beings were made to serve the needs of the gods, made to be slaves. Not only was there this like social imaginary, you could say, this collective sense about what a human being was and what a human being was for, but Israel as a people had lived the embodied life. They had played the role. They had acted the part of a slave people for a few hundred years. How was this people going to take up the role and play the part of God's people? What must they know and what must they practice if they were going to get their bearings right to live as God's people? Now, our, our situation is different, but we too live in a confusing and at times contradictory world. We live in a world where, in essence, we're told that we've come from nothing. So, in a sense, you could say we've, we have come from meaninglessness and violence, the strong eating the weak, evolutionary forces. That's, that's where we've come from. We're, we're now here. 
And we're headed toward meaninglessness and violence, whether we're talking individually as we die, our lives are taken from us and we won't be remembered after a few hundred years for sure, or as a species as one day we will die out from whether it's nuclear fallout or AI or uh, the exploding or dying out of the sun, in some way human life will end in violence never to be remembered again. We've come from meaninglessness and violence, we're going toward meaninglessness and violence, but yet we're supposed to live lives of love and meaning and purpose. And rarely, perhaps, do most people in our world slow down to stop and think about, how does that make any sense? Yet there's this collective sense that we have that we're, that we're supposed to love other people, that we should seek after meaning, and that we also need to just, we need to do things. We need to achieve. We need to be successful. We want to win. We want to productive. Unto what? I, I don't know. And especially around here, I would say in, in the western suburbs, there's this, is there not a, a FOMO, an anxiety, a fear, whether that's of missing out or of not being enough, not doing enough, not achieving enough. And so we get caught up in these frantic lives of busyness and more and more and more unto what? We're not sure but we have to stay with the pack. We, we, we can't fall behind. We asked the question last week when we started this series of, of habits for love, thinking about the habits of our lives and the structures of our lives. We asked this question of what is your goal? What is the goal of your life? As you think about the pieces of your life, the different roles you play, what, what is the goal of those different parts of your life, of, you know, in your work, it, in your family, if, you're, if you have kids, with your kids, what is your goal? What's the goal? We, like Israel, need to know the beginning of the story. We need to know the beginning of the story, and we need to know where this story was meant to go. We need to know the goal. And that's what we're given in, in these opening uh, parts of Genesis. Put simply, the goal is rest. Now, to understand what that means, because the goal is not taking a nap, we need to look at this text of Genesis 1 and 2, and we need to think about what God is telling His people in this text, as well as how He is framing this story. And the first thing I just, I just want to, to tell you and, and help you to see is that the story of creation is told with temple language. I'm going to explain why that's important in a moment, but it's told with temple language. Numerous writers and scholars have pointed out how highly organized uh, this text is. It's, it's hymn-like. You probably even heard it with its re refrains and repeated lyrical patterns. And one of the things you can observe in Genesis is this repetition of seven. Seven was the number of perfection. It was also viewed as a sacred number. There are seven days of creation. And if you go into the book of Exodus, when the Israelites are, are told to build the tabernacle, which is basically like that movable temple that they had in the wilderness, it's done, uh, it's ordered by seven, a process of seven speeches that God gives. There's archaeological evidence that temples in the ancient Near East were built in terms of the number seven. 
King Solomon, when he built the temple, it took seven years to build the temple. When he dedicated the temple, it happened during the seven-day festival of tabernacles on the seventh month in Israel's calendar. There's this emphasis on seven connected to later texts in the Bible to help frame and help the Israelites understand what creation is meant to be. And in addition to this, uh, the climactic part of temple building and the ceremonies in the ancient Near Eastern world was when the deity would come to rest in the temple. And likewise, in the text that was just read, the days of creation in Genesis, you can see that there's this goal moving toward the climactic seventh day. There's a sequence of days that is moving toward the seventh, the seventh being a goal. And I want us to see this in the text, but what we're going to see is that these days, days one through six, they come in pairs, but the seventh day is all by itself. The days come in pairs, so you have days one and four, two and five, and three and six. And in the first three days, one through three, God in a sense creates like a space or a realm. He separates, He divides, He marks out this area from that area. And then in the corresponding day, four through six, God creates, makes, or places something in that space or realm to rule it or fill it. So let me show you this. Look at the text with me. The first pair of days, days one and four, verse three, God says, let there be light. God separates the light from the darkness. But it's not until day four that God creates the heavenly bodies that rule the day and the night. So you look at verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate from the day and the night. Let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years. <clears throat> we read in verse 16 and 17 that these lights are to have a governing or ruling function. Let's look at the second pair of days, days two and five. If you look at verse six, we read, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then in day five, in verse 20 and following, you see that God creates sea creatures and birds which are to fill the sky and the sea. And God blesses them, verse 22, and says, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. So there's the first pairing, you see this emphasis on ruling, and the second pairing, this filling. And then the last pair, days three and six, if you look at day three in verse nine, God forms the dry ground. In verse 11, he prepares the dry ground for inhabitants by making the land fruitful with vegetation. And then in day six, God creates living creatures, animals to fill up that space. And then the, you know, not quite the climax, but the penultimate climax, is the high point of creation up to that point, God makes human beings. Verse 26, God makes human beings in his image, made to reflect God, to represent God to the world like little rulers, like royal children of the great king. Humanity is given the role of both ruling and filling and the conclusion at the end of day six is not just that it was good, but that it was very good. You see, what, 
what we see is that these, these days, they're not just static telling of this event or, or, and then this event, that it's moving in a direction. It's framed with this temple language, it's dressed with temple language, and it's moving toward day seven when God rests in His cosmic temple. And so, if we're going to understand what the world is for, and if we're going to understand what our lives are made for, we have to understand this rest. Obviously, God wasn't tired. God wasn't worn out from all this creating. The point isn't a nap. Rest points to the reality that God is king, that he is the sovereign creator who has completed his work, and his resting on the seventh day, a day that you'll notice that doesn't end with, and there was evening and there was morning, indicating that this is ongoing, his resting is a celebration of his enthronement. God has established order and stability and rest is about celebrating and savoring and enjoying God who is king. Which is to say, rest is about worship. So what that this text is framed with temple language? And what does that mean? It means that the world was made for worship. That God means to dwell here with us. It means that the goal of your life is worship. It means that everything in our lives is meant to have its meaning and its significance in relationship to God who is the King. So we're in this series, Habits for Love. And this is why we're doing this series, because it is very easy for us to go about life somewhat aimlessly at times, just, you know, doing things, getting things done, feeling busy, feeling rushed, feeling the need like we have to just keep going and going and going, and maybe hopefully one day we'll get somewhere and we'll have meaning and fullness. This is why as a church we're focusing on looking at our structures, like the things in our life that that structure the way we do life as well as our habits, the repeated ways of thinking and being of how we do life. And this is why we're focused this fall on this theme of rest. Because your life will never come into the fullness it was made for if resting in God if celebrating, enjoying, savoring God as king is cut out by competing things, or it's squeezed out by busyness, or it's just drowned out by noise and distraction. Humanity was given this monumental task. Verse 28, fill the earth subdue it. And if we were to keep reading in Genesis 2, I think the picture that we're meant to have here is that humanity was given this task to expand the Garden of Eden, that as humanity multiplied and it cultivated and subdued the earth, our calling was as the image of God to reflect the Creator who had made this cosmic temple to dwell with us. And we were to go about this work of filling and having dominion and subduing and cultivating the earth until the garden filled the whole earth, which is where the Bible ends in Revelation 21 and 22. I mean, think about the overwhelming task that that could be. Fill the earth, subdue it. 
Many of us can probably relate in our own lives. I mean, think about the laundry that never ends, the Sisyphean, Sisyphean parts of your existence, that that rock gets moved up the hill only to come back down. It just seems never-ending. There's never-ending patients. There's never-ending clients. There's never-ending students. If you're a student, there's never-ending work and assignments. Just on and on and on. And yet, the work that God gave was never meant to be exhausting to humanity in the beginning. And I think the primary reason for that is because humanity was to always have this relationship toward God. This orientation of resting in God of celebrating God's image, I mean, of God's kingship. That's what an image is meant to do. It's meant to reflect. An image is not the original. It's, it's derivative. It, and so it has to keep looking to the thing it was made for. And humanity could only do that as we were oriented toward God, toward the goal for which we were made of celebrating and resting in Him. But of course, you know, we know what happens in the story. We turn, we sin, we decide to be our own gods, to rule our own lives. We lose the connection with God of resting with Him, and the goal of life just fades. And so from this point on in the story, after humanity turns, our identity and what we're for and the goal of our life is just fraught with anxiety and frustration. Our work would be anxious and exhausting, not only because of the greater challenge to work after we turn from God, but because work would now always be a sense in a place where I could get a sense of who I am. Work could always be this place of where I could achieve and build an identity and build meaning and build purpose apart from God because we don't know who we are and we don't know what we're for. Well, work becomes this thing that I can feel good about. I, I can feel like I know who I am. And maybe for you, it's not like literally your job, but it's, it's just the things you do. I feel good because the task list got done today. I feel good because I, I raised these kids. That's how I know who I am because my child got into this school. Or I know who I am because I drive this kind of car. or I live in this kind of house or I've achieved this kind of success. And obviously, this way of life, it's not just something intellectual in our minds, but it's a way of life that's literally been embodied in the structures of life and in the habits in which we engage life in this world, meaning that you can intellectually believe in Jesus and yet have a life and a way of being in the world that is actually moving you away from resting and celebrating Him. I want you to imagine a typical suburbanite, married with kids. Let's say they believe in God. Let's say they believe in Jesus. And they want to find rest and peace in their life through Him. This person gets up every day, a little groggy from what seems like never enough sleep. And the first thing they do, you know, they pull out the phone. And 
begin checking the email and the news and what's happening in the world and who do I need to respond to and what has to be done. And then there's a quick glance at the calendar or the to-do app and the list of things. And then the morning is hectic because the lunches have to be made and the kids have to go off to school or daycare. And then we commute to work or we jump right on the computer and we begin, we begin working at home and meetings and tasks fill the day and it, it just, there never seems to be enough time. And the workday is now coming to a close, but of course the day is far from over because the kids have to be taken to soccer practice and baseball practice and guitar lessons and drum lessons. And, and then as you're sitting in the parking lot waiting for the child to be done with these things, you're, you're scrolling through the phone again, maybe social media, maybe you're checking for that email that you know that was supposed to come and you're waiting to hear what that client or what your boss is, is going to say. And, and then the kids get in the car and of course, oh, we haven't grocery shopped yet. Okay, so we're either going to do drive through we're going to go home and do frozen pizza for dinner. And then we're going to rush the kids because they got to get their homework done, and it's, come on, bath time, let's go, get, get in bed, and then we have laundry to do, and then more task lists, and then we collapse on the couch with a glass of wine, or maybe two, and some snacks, and TV, and the phone gets pulled out again, and scrolling social media, and checking the email, and we either fall asleep on the couch, or we eventually go into bed, but stressed out knowing that we only got seven of ten things done today, and so that means there's 13 things to do tomorrow. We go to sleep, we wake up, rinse, wash, and do it again. The point of all that is that if your embodied habits and the structures of of your life keep you frantic, and constantly doing and working, mixed in with distractions, mixed in with habits of numbing, you are not suddenly going to experience the love of Jesus. The New Testament book of Hebrews, the author recalls this seventh day, Genesis 2-2, and says, there is an ultimate rest. There is a rest that can be yours through faith in Jesus. Because Jesus has completed the work. He's come into the world. He pioneered the path toward God through chaos, brokenness, and sin. He made the way. He gave himself for us that he might deliver us from sin and death and bring us into the rest that we were made for. And this same Jesus who gave himself for you, who died and rose again, he calls us not to just believe with our minds, but to trust Him, to follow Him, to learn His way of life. In Matthew 11, Jesus in essence says this, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I will show you real rest. Walk with me. Walk at my pace. Learn the rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy on you or anything ill-fitted on you. Come to me and learn from me and learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus calls us to himself to be with him. And to, new, and to learn a new way to go about life. 
The Christian life, we could say, begins when we come to Jesus, when we turn to him in faith and we look to him and we rejoice in who he is and we, re- and we rest in who he is as king and what he has done for us. This, you could say, is that first breath of life. Growing as a Christian is continuing to breathe. It's remembering to breathe, that we have to keep breathing. We have to keep looking at Him. We have to have habits and structures in our lives that keep reorienting us to this rest of resting in Him and adoring Him and enjoying Him. If busyness starves your life of the oxygen of worship, if gathered Sunday worship becomes contested with other things, if communal worship, a way of life that we share together, gets crowded out by, by work or by the thousand good things that we could sign up for, if personal worship, times of silence and stillness and prayer before God, times of slowing and listening to God in the Scriptures, if we become too distracted, too busy, too exhausted to draw on the oxygen of worship, it's like trying to live holding your breath. This, this time that we have on Sunday mornings, gathered Sunday worship, it is a reminder to breathe. It's us coming together to breathe in and celebrate and rest in our King who has loved us, who has died and risen, and in whom we find rest. But, but this day is, is not meant to just be this really big breath we take where we can just leave and then hold our breath all week. Rather, we need habits and practices throughout the week that help orient us toward the goal of our lives, worship. This is leading us to the next phase of our project together. Uh, during Sunday school today, adult Sunday school, we're going to be talking about this, and then in an email that, that goes out this week on Tuesday, we're inviting you to... Um, Consider a time of what we're calling detox, ways of practicing slowing our lives down, intentionally slowing down, making space and room to breathe, that we might reorient and rest and rejoice in God. If you're new here this morning, uh, you could feel free to email me or Jeff. Our emails are on the back of the bulletin. We would be more than happy to send you out the things that we've really just started like a week ago or two weeks ago as a congregation thinking about this project about habits and structures of our lives. But we'd like to invite you to try and slow down with us these next two weeks because in, in the weeks that are coming after that, we're, we're going to suggest some practices of of prayer and, and slowly meditating on the scriptures that I think might be hard to do if life is already feeling like there is literally no space. In the document that's going to be set out, uh, there's going to be a list of things that you might try in the next couple weeks, and some of them, if you choose to do them, they might make you feel a little uncomfortable. It's okay, you know. Uh, if we become addicted to speed and productivity and efficiency, we should expect that slowing down might actually feel kind of weird. But let me again remind us why we're doing this, why we're talking about this this fall. The point is that we might center our lives around Jesus. 
And that as we learn to grow in Him and follow Him, and as we learn to, to dwell in His love and fix our eyes on Him, there will be a way of life that is formed more deeply in us, a redemptive way of living in this ecosystem of grace where we can enjoy the peace and love and hope that is ours through faith in Jesus. Let me invite us now to turn to God in a time of prayer. To turn to God, perhaps confessing our sins. Uh, to pray, asking for help. I'll give us a, a few moments for silent prayer, and then uh, I'll lead us in an opening, or in a, I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray.